Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 38, 2 Kings chapter 24. Now, although we're going to start uh, a new chapter today, in 2 Kings chapter 24, <clears throat> excuse me, we're going to continue in what amounts to a very heavy-duty Bible history lesson, along with an equally heavy dose of application today. Now, the last time we ended with the death of righteous King Josiah at the hands of the Egyptian army, and recall that for some ill-fated reason, likely that he felt the need to bolster Babylon's cause in order to counter the Assyrian-Egyptian alliance, he took his Judahite army out to Megiddo to face Pharaoh Necho's forces as they sought to do no more than march through Judah and the former territory of the Ten Tribes on their way to do battle at Carchemish. Now, Yoshiao, Josiah, was shot by an Egyptian archer and he died on his way back to Jerusalem. Josiah's son Jehoiachaz replaced his father. But he stepped into a hornet's nest of problems, mostly due to Josiah attacking Egypt's army without any real provocation, which resulted in Pharaoh Necho deciding to subjugate Judah in retribution. And Necho also decided that now he wanted to put his own man on Judah's throne. So Jehoiachaz lasted a mere three months as Judah's king, but then his brother Eliakim was given the throne in his place. Necho gave Eliakim a new name, a royal name, Jehoiachim. Jehoi- or we know him in English more as Jehoiakim. Now, <clears throat> during Jehoiakim's 11-year reign, he spent the first three as a vassal to Egypt and to Necho. But then in 605 BC, a seismic shift in the region's power structure occurred as Nabopolassar, the king of Babylon, pushed Egypt back to the Sinai, thus taking over the region that was formerly known as Judah and Israel. Overnight, Jehoiakim became a vassal to Babylon. In that same year, Nabopolassar died and his son Nebuchadnezzar took his place. Now in that same year, the age of the Assyrian Empire also came to an end, with most of it now taken over by what historians call the Neo or the New Babylonian Empire. But there was also another regional power in the making, that of the Medes. Media occupied an enormous expanse of territory. You see it up here in this goldy yellow color. It stretched all the way from modern day Iran to India. They made an alliance with Babylon and together they formed a seemingly unconquerable superpower. Jehoiakim quickly grew tired of Nebuchadnezzar's heavy hand and so he rebelled. Now what does rebellion mean in this case? 
Likely it just meant, as it did with most vassal relationships, that he stopped sending the required tribute and taxes to Babylon. And through messengers let it be known that he considered himself no longer under Babylon's control. Well, in the 601-600 BC time frame, Nebuchadnezzar again faced an Egyptian army. The battle is reported in the Babylonian Chronicles and it took place mostly in the Sinai. There the two armies met in fierce battle with heavy losses inflicted on both sides. There doesn't actually appear to have even been a, a clear victor. The outcome was so uncertain that towards the end of the battle, King Nebuchadnezzar fled and returned to Babylon. On the other hand, there's kind of a cryptic mention, not of the battle itself, but of the result that we're going to read about shortly in 2 Kings 24. There it says, the king of Egypt didn't leave his land anymore because the king of of Babel had captured all the territory of the king of Egypt between the Wadi of Egypt and the Euphrates River. So the result of the war with Babylon so decimated the Egyptian army that they didn't dare chance doing any more than just defending their own national borders. The Babylonian army was also severely wounded and it limped home to regroup and to be rearmed. In those days, that took considerable time, perhaps a couple of years. But especially considering that this Babylonian-Egyptian war took place just below Judah's border. It took place right in here. Here's Judah up in here. It says it took place just below their border. Melech Jehoiakim, King Jehoiakim, no doubt observed it quite carefully, probably with a lot of glee he must have determined that Babylon came away from it so weakened that now it gave him an opportunity to escape their subjection. He badly miscalculated. And it seems to have eventually cost him his life. Historically, what we find is the last days of any nation, of any kingdom or empire, are usually the most documented because they're the most important and they're very telling they hand down to posterity the how and the why that a formerly strong nation shockingly declined into irrelevance or maybe even into extinction. It's no different with Israel and now Judah. Except that we see this was all at God's direct hand. We find much information on the matter recorded in a number of sources in the Bible. Second Kings, Second Chronicles, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Ezekiel, and Daniel. We're going to be examining several of those biblical resources to try and get the best handle on what happened to Judah. So, open your Bibles to Second Kings chapter 24. Second Kings chapter 24. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 432. It was in Jehoiakim's time that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babel, invaded. 
Now Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years, and then he turned against him and rebelled. And Adonai sent against him raiding parties from the Kastim, Chaldeans, Aram, Moab, and the people of Ammon, and he sent against them uh, he set them against Judah to destroy it in keeping with the word of Adonai which he had spoken through his servants, the prophets. Yes, it was at Adonai's order that this happened to Judah in order to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh and all he had done and also because of the innocent blood he had shed for he had flooded Jerusalem with innocent blood and Adonai was unwilling to forgive. Other activities of Jehoiakim and all of his accomplishments are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah. And then Jehoiakim slept with his ancestors and Jehoiakim, his son, took his place as king. The king of Egypt did not leave his own land anymore because the king of Babel had captured all the territory of the king of Egypt between the Wadi of Egypt and the Euphrates River. Jehoiakim was 18 months old when he began his reign, and he ruled in Jerusalem for three months. His mother's name was Nehushtah, the daughter of El-Natan from Jerusalem. He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective, following the example of everything his father had done. It was then that the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babel, marched on Jerusalem and laid siege to the city. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babel, himself went to the city while it was under siege. And Jehoiakim, king of Judah, went out to meet the king of Babel. He, his mother, his servants, princes and officers, and the king of Babel took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. He also carried away from there all the treasures in the house of Adonai and the treasures in the royal palace. And he cut into pieces all the articles of gold which Shlomo, Solomon, king of Israel had made in the attempt rather made in the temple of Adonai as Adonai had said it would happen he carried all Jerusalem away captive all the princes all the bravest soldiers 10,000 captives also all the craftsmen metal workers no one was left but the poorest people of the land Jehoiakim he carried off to Babel Likewise, he carried off the king's mother, the king's wives, his officers, and the main leaders of the land from Jerusalem into captivity in Babylon. All the strong men, 7,000 of them, as well as a 1,000 craftsmen and metalsmiths, all of them strong, trained for war, the king of Babel brought captive to Babel. The king of Babel made Mataniah, Jehoiakim's father's brother, king in place of Jehoiakim and changed his name to Zidkiah, Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to rule and he ruled for 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Yermiah, Jeremiah, from Libna. He did what was evil from the perspective of Adonai, following the example of everything Jehoiakim had done. And it was because of Adonai's anger that all these things happened to Jerusalem and Judah until he had thrown them out of his presence. Sidkiah, Hezekiah, rebelled against the king of Babel. Now it's typical of the way that history, whether it's secular or biblical, is taught. In that it seems to the student as though one can pinpoint a day or a date when some event happened 
that caused nations and, and kingdoms to end or to change hands. Or when mass population migrations or deportations or even genocides occurred. But in reality, these things rolled out in stages over many years. And the date given is only recognizing some tipping point. Or, or maybe some traditional day set aside for remembrance of this national tragedy or triumph, depending on which side you're on. Thus, even though the date of the coming fall of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar is usually given as 586 B.C., give or take a year, and that's when the Jews were hauled off to Babylon, that gives us a wrong impression. In fact, that date was not when the holy city was conquered. But rather, it was when it, along with the temple, was destroyed. And this is because Jerusalem was first taken over by Babylon intact during Jehoiakim's reign, as Second Kings 24 explains to us. Judah would then have to go through two more kings after Jehoiakim before Nebuchadnezzar would finally be provoked into the extreme action of actually destroying the temple and raising the city and the end of Judah as a kingdom would thus be declared. Now verse 1 of chapter 24 explains that Jehoiakim rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar and this caused the king of Babylon to react violently. No doubt this is not what King Jehoiakim anticipated due to what he thought was a much too weakened and demoralized Babylonian army that was still smarting from its beatdown by the Egyptian army a year or so earlier in the Sinai. You know, one wonders why Jehoiakim waited so long between the Babylonian-Egyptian conflict before he decided to rebel. But nothing we've read says that Jehoiakim was inept. So more than likely, he, re he did rebel immediately following that war. But it just took many months before Nebuchadnezzar's army could be restocked with weapons and with new soldiers, and then he was finally able to respond to that rebellion. It's quite interesting to me that the writer-editor of 2 Kings says in verse 2 that it was Jehovah, God of Israel, who sent those troops from Aram and Moab and Ammon along with the Chaldeans, that means Babylonians, to attack Jerusalem. See, there's two points here. First of all, notice that what was sent were mercenaries for some of the conquered kingdoms of Ammon and Aram and Moab. More and more we're going to now encounter the term Chaldeans. For now, just equate it to the Babylonians, and then I'll, I'll explain it a little bit more later on. The Chaldean contingency only made up part of the army, but they represented the command and control element of the total force. The troops from Ammon and Aram and Moab provided the bulk of the foot soldiers. The reality is that Nebuchadnezzar didn't feel confident yet that he was quite ready to send his full army out to do battle and no doubt hope that this kind of modest multinational force would be sufficient to put down Judah's rebellion. Now the second point I want to make is a lot more challenging 
to deal with. And it's, it, and it's the one that I closed with in the previous lesson whereby I said that a goodly portion of modern Christianity says that either God would never do what's reported in the Bible about siding with Judah's enemies or he might have done it in the past but things have changed and he wouldn't do it now. And that is predicated on the rather standard Roman Christian doctrine that God does not punish believers for our bad attitudes or even for our sinful actions if we declare salvation in Christ. Thus, we're going to detour a little bit and deal with this issue of God himself intentionally inciting Judah's enemies to come and destroy Judah. And please notice, this is totally unlike, don't make any um, connection to what we hear about in the end times prophecies when God incites Israel's enemies to come from the north, to come to Armageddon to fight Israel and Messiah, because in Babylon's case, God is on their side. And he wants Judah to be severely punished by Babylon. But in the end times case... God is against the people from the north. And he's only luring them into battle so that they can be gathered into one place and destroyed in mass for their wickedness. Two different scenarios. Now 2 Kings verse 3 expands a little about what God's intentions were in drawing the forces from the four nations to attack Jerusalem. It was that he wanted to use this foreign army to remove his chosen people from his sight. Now, the promised land was the kingdom land. And the kingdom land was that which God oversaw. Now, in one sense, the thought is kind of wrapped up in ancient cultural belief and superstition that a god only had visibility, control, and jurisdiction over his own territory. Thus, the god of Ammon only had power in Ammon, the god of Moab only had power in Moab, and so on. So if the god of Israel only had visibility and power in the promised land, then if the people were removed from it and sent to another nation, then they were out of his sight, which is something God wanted. In the end, this is just meaning for Judah to be exiled. <clears throat> it is the sins of Manasseh that are being blamed for Judah's wicked condition. But again, this statement is mostly bound up in Hebrew cultural thought. See, Manasseh is remembered as the worst, the most evil king that Judah ever had. Now recall that like the four Gospels, and especially the three Synoptic Gospels, we get somewhat different viewpoints of the same events, and thus some information is included in one account, it's not in another. The writer-editor of Second Kings, <clears throat> for some reason, chose to only recall the worst of King Manasseh, but to ignore the final six years of his 55-year reign in which he thoroughly repented. He changed dramatically into a good king, and that change is recorded in some detail in Second Chronicles 33. Thus, what we need to grasp <clears throat> is that the people of Judah 
during Jehoiakim's reign are said to embody all of the worst of sins and abominations of Manasseh. And that's why God is going to inflict wholesale punishment of a horrific degree upon Judah. In other words, yes, Jehoiakim was a bad king and he led his people poorly. But the reason Jehoiakim, uh, rather the reason that Jehovah was doing all of these things that he was in the process of doing to the Jews of Judah wasn't laid at Jehoiakim's doorstep, it was the people. The people. The common citizens of Judah who were to blame. This might be a good time for me to comment that especially in our Western world, those citizens, including Christians and Jews, who see and are disgusted at our moral and our economic decline, have a tendency to want to point to our governmental leaders as the culprits. I'm here to tell you that it isn't them. It's us. And Holy Scripture makes it clear that God sees it that way. Our government didn't create the gay and lesbian movements and their recent demand to be seen as good and wholesome. Our governments didn't create the desire for abortion on demand. Our governments didn't create our lust for immoral sex of every kind. Our governments didn't replace the biblical truth with humanistic doctrines and philosophies that dominates our churches today. We, the people, we did that. Or at least we demanded it so it would satisfy us. And we, the people, are going to justifiably bear the divine consequences, just as the people of Judah did. So before we go any further, to help us understand just what God was up to by virtually siding with the Babylonians and using them to punish Judah, let's go to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 27, to get a much-needed perspective, not only historically as concerns Judah and the Jews of Judah, but to the people of modern times as well. So turn to Jeremiah chapter 27. Jeremiah chapter 27. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 593. 593. We're going to read it all. Jeremiah 27. At the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Yoshiao, Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from Adonai. And Adonai says this to me, Make yourself a yoke of straps and crossbars and put it on your neck. Send similar yokes to the kings of Edom, Moab, and the people of Ammon, of Sor, and of Sidon by means of the envoys they send to Jerusalem and to Zedekiah, Zedekiah king of Judah. Give them this message for their masters by telling their envoys that Adonai Sepaot, the God of Israel, says for them to tell their masters, I made the earth, 
humankind and the animals on the earth by my great power and my outstretched arm and I give it to whom it seems right to me. For now, I've given over all these lands to my servant Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babel. I have also given him the wild animals to serve him. All the nations will serve him, his son and his grandson, until his own country gets its turn, at which times many nations and great kings will make him their slave. The nation and kingdom that refuses to serve this Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, that will not put their necks under the yoke of the king of Babel, I will punish, says Adonai with sword and famine and plague, till I put an end to them through him. You, therefore, don't listen to your prophets, diviners, dreamers, magicians, sorcerers, when they tell you that you won't be subject to the king of Babel. For they're prophesying lies to you that will result in your being removed from your land with my driving you out so that you perish. But the nation that puts its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serves him, that nation I will allow to remain on their own soil. Says Adonai, they'll farm it. They'll live there. Then I spoke to Zedekiah king of Judah in just the same way. Put your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and you will live. Why would you want to die, you and your people? by sword and famine and plague, which is what Adonai has decreed for the nation that will not serve the king of Babel. Don't listen to the words of the prophets who say to you, you'll not serve the king of Babel because they're prophesying lies to you. I have not sent them, says Adonai, and they are prophesying falsely in my name with the result that I will drive you out and you will perish. You and the prophets prophesying to you. I also spoke to the Kohanim, the priests, and to all this people, and I said, This is what Adonai says. Don't listen to the words of the prophets prophesying to you that the articles from Adonai's house will soon be returned from Babylon because they are prophesying lies to you. Don't listen to them. Serve the king of Babel. Stay alive. Why should this city become a ruin? But if they are in fact prophets, and if the word of Adonai is with them, then let them now intercede with Adonai Zevaot, that the article still remaining in the house of Adonai and in the palace of the king of Judah won't go off to Babylon. For this is what Adonai Zevaot says concerning the columns and the sea and the bases and the rest of the articles still here in this city that Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon didn't seize when he carried off captive Yochnau, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah from Jerusalem to Babylon, along with the leading men of Judah and Jerusalem. Yes, this is what Adonai Shaddai, the God of Israel, says about the things remaining in the house of Adonai in the palace of the king of Judah and Jerusalem. They will be carried to Babylon. And there they will stay until the day I remember them and I bring them back and restore them to this place, says Adonai. Now we're not going to go through this verse by verse, but I'm going to highlight certain statements and, and sort of sum up the matter. The issue of the yokes on the necks of these various nations, including Judah, is to indicate subjugation. 
And the straightforward intent is to make it clear that while on earth it is Babylon that is attaching those yokes, and thus it is in Babylon's hands that the reins to the yokes have been given. In heaven, it's all happening by God's direction. And his purpose is not to highlight any wickedness in Babylon or in King Nebuchadnezzar, but rather to highlight the wickedness of God's own people, Judah. God has decided to turn over Judah and these other nations to Babylon for a while. So God is going to side with Babylon for a while. In fact, Babylon's going to be shown great favor by the Lord. Why? Because as it said in verse 5, I made the earth, humankind, the animals on the earth, by my great power, my outstretched arm, and I give it to whom it seems right to me. God says, without apology, He made everything, everybody, and therefore it all belongs to Him. He has the sole right to decide what to do with everybody and everything. And he has decided he wants to turn all these people and nations and all of their resources over to Babylon. Now in retrospect, we have been reading about the circumstances that caused God to react in such a way. And yet, ask yourself this. Is this the only possible reaction he could have had? I mean, couldn't he have done something else than to turn Judah over to Babylon? Couldn't he just do what so many modern believers honestly, but I think foolishly, thinks he does now in our time? Just kind of wink and nod at our sin like a kindly old grandfather? In other words, rather than punish and discipline, why not just simply show unlimited mercy no matter what? It's peculiar to me how the same modern believers who hold that viewpoint can read what we've been studying and agree with God about how He has been terrorizing Judah and now deporting them to Babylon for their many sins against Him. Why don't we feel that God wronged Judah? Because he could have just as easily looked the other way and showed them mercy. You know, kind of like we think he ought to do for us. Here's another consideration. Did these people cease to be his chosen? Was Judah no longer redeemed? Was their redemption revoked? Nothing indicates that the redeemed status has changed. What we have learned is that God has and does and will always at times choose mercy, at other times choose punishment. And we won't necessarily know what his criteria is for choosing. No pope No minister, no priest, no Bible teacher, 
And no layperson knows where that cosmic line in the sand is. God does what seems to be right in his own eyes without regard as to what we think is fair or what we think he ought to do. So, God intends for Judah to be under the yoke of Babylon. In fact, the people of Judah are to accept this as their fate. They're not to fight against it. Why? Because unlike other situations in the past, when nations and kingdoms attacked Judah and they were enemies of God and enemies of the Israelites, in this case, Babylon is essentially a friend of God. And God intends to have Judah suffer. Jeremiah 27.8 The nation and kingdom that refuses to serve this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, that will not put their necks under the yoke of the king of Babel, I will punish says Adonai, with sword and famine and plague until I put an end to them through him. God warns that the unwise nation, including Judah, who fights against Babylon and refuses to submit to Babylon, is actually fighting against him. Now please put this in your memory banks, because this explains why it was wrong for King Jehoiakim to rebel against the king of Babylon. And it explains why as a result of Judah's rebellion, Nebuchadnezzar deported thousands of Jews to Babylon. Jeremiah warned King Jehoiakim that not only was Judah to submit, but that if they didn't, God would intervene on Babylon's behalf. The Lord says, I will punish. Even put an end to those who rebel against Babylon. God will punish Judah even more harshly if they don't submit to Babylon because this subjugation is God's will for his redeemed chosen people. Now, I don't know about you, but this is a sight of God I wish wasn't there. I don't like it very much. I'd much rather that God is love, only love, or that God is mercy, only mercy. But the truth is that a God like that is unknown in the Bible. See, a God can only be known to humans by two things, his name and his attributes. The God of the Bible, our God, your God, Jehovah has many attributes. And besides his love and his mercy, his healing and his salvation, is his wrath and his judgment. And if you think that while that may have been in times past, but it's not the case since the advent of Christ in the New Testament, then answer this question for me. Who is that God at Armageddon? that will kill so many millions of people in his wrath and his fury and in his judgment. Who is that God then? Revelation 11 through 18, 19 rather, Revelation 19, 11 through 18. Next I saw heaven opened, and there before me was a white horse, and sitting on it was the one called Faithful and True. And it is in righteousness that he passes judgment and goes to battle. 
His eyes were like a fiery flame, and on his head were many royal crowns. And he had a name written which no one knew but himself. He was wearing a robe that had been soaked in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down nations. He will rule them with a staff of iron. It is he who treads the winepress from which flows the wine of the furious rage of Adonai, God of heaven's armies. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written on it. King of kings and Lord of lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried out in a loud voice to all the birds that fly about in the midheaven, Come, gather together for the great feast that God is giving. You will eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of generals, the flesh of important men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all kinds of people, free and slave, small and great. Pretty sobering. Now notice that beginning in Jeremiah 27.9, the Lord warns that prophets and diviners and dreamers and magicians and sorcerers are going to tell the people of Judah that none of this is true. They're going to tell you, your loving God wouldn't punish you. He won't banish you. He would never allow Babylon to win. Who are these prophets and diviners and seers? Are they pagans or foreigners? Some might be. Mostly, they're Hebrews from Judah. They're the same ones that the Jews of Judah have been going to for a word from the Lord for a long time. But, says Jehovah, don't listen to them because they're liars. Rather, if the conquered nations, including Judah, will just bow down to God's will of subjugation to Babylon as His divine punishment upon them, then they will live. They won't die. They'll even be allowed to stay on their own soil. They won't be deported to Babylon. Now, if we were to spend a lot of time in the book of Jeremiah, we'd find Jeremiah railing against other prophets of Judah. These were the common prophets who attended and graduated from the several prophets' academies that we've read about in earlier lessons, even going back to the time of Samuel. And because of their training, and because the people certainly accepted their station and position as prophets of the God Yehovah, the population of Judah paid attention to what they had to say. But God says no. These guys aren't telling you the truth. No matter how they might represent themselves as speaking for God. Now to bring that understanding forward to our time. Sometimes we'll see a courageous pastor propose that a certain horrific catastrophe can only be by God's hand of justice considering the terrible backslidden state of our nation and rampant apostasy in our churches and but almost always in response a whole host of other pastors will stand up and chastise the first one for saying something that to them is too judgmental and unloving 
The point is that while admittedly none of us have direct insight on the source of any of these terrible events, the reality is that the Bible makes it clear that God does not have unlimited patience upon His people or upon wicked nations. And that He doesn't just let things go and let things go and let things go and then BAM! All at once without warning judgment. doesn't work that way. Rather the pattern is that as His followers get off track, just like for Judah, He begins to send a few of the faithful with a message. Stop sinning. Repent. Change. Go back to the truth. Let go of those weak and tired doctrines and traditions of men that have become so infiltrated with paganism. And as we refuse to listen to that message and as we harden ourselves to His voice, then more bad things start to happen and it escalates. At first it's things we can usually recover from. But at some point, if there's no substantial repentance and heartfelt change, the brunt of His wrath finally comes. And from it there's no respite. Now let me ask you directly. What direction do you see the world in general and the Western world in particular going? Is it more moral and more godly than it was 40 years ago? Or 20? Or 10? Or is it sinking lower every day? Are our Christian and Jewish institutions becoming more faithful, more interested in promoting God's Word now than 40 years ago? or 20, or 10? Or do the people demand more messages of tolerance and material prosperity and happiness? And they only want to hear that God's here to fulfill all of our personal hopes and dreams. Judah went down this same path 2,700 years ago. It chose to prefer false messages of hope, peace, and prosperity over and against the true messages of coming disaster unless big changes were made in their lives. And we're reading just how it is that God reacts to willful disobedience and to unfaithfulness. So why should we open our ears to this message in 2013? A message I don't even like giving one you probably don't want to hear because perhaps perhaps if we'll take it to heart we can push back the clock just a little if our generation will repent and change or at least we'll know how to prepare for what's coming and then see it in the spiritual light that we ought to rather than being shocked or in denial Perhaps having a crisis of faith. Because we just don't understand how it could be that God could allow such bad things to happen to His people who call upon His name. Bottom line. Through Jeremiah, the Lord said to Judah, Don't listen to those who's telling you, Oh, everything's fine. 
or that God would never harm His believers and He certainly wouldn't allow exile to Babylon. The Lord says, don't listen to those who say, don't worry, things are getting better. God's people are becoming more faithful. The world's becoming more godly. God will deliver us from what seems like certain calamity, even if it's the result of our sin. And finally, starting in Jeremiah 27.16, the Lord sends a message directly to Judah's religious establishment. Serve the king of Babel, because it is the Lord who has willed this. Don't listen to anyone who tells you otherwise, and don't incite resistance. And yes, all these furnishings, all these implements around you of the temple that have been so valuable, important to you, for all these years, they're going to get hauled off to Babylon and desecrated. But someday... Someday, when the Lord ordains it, the people of Judah and the sacred items will return to the land. So God's wrath won't go on forever. And there it is. Hope. Hope. There's always hope in the Lord. Always. But sometimes that hope isn't for us. It's for others. Perhaps the hope is for the next generation. Maybe the one after that. And that is because there is a biblical principle that is first stated in the Torah. In Deuteronomy 24.16 Fathers are not to be executed for their children nor children to be executed for their fathers. Every person will be executed for his own sin. The present generation of Judah was doomed. They'd gone too far for too long. There wasn't any hope for them in the sense of escaping God's justice. The matter was decided. However, after what would prove to be 70 years in exile, the generation who committed all these terrible sins would be dead and gone. They paid the price. But God gave those who came after them a hope of someday returning from Babylon to their homeland. This is a God pattern we saw with the exodus from Egypt. The first exodus generation sinned so terribly in the wilderness that God refused to let them into the promised land. They wandered in exile, so to speak, until that generation died off. But the next generation bore no responsibility for the sins of their parents. So God allowed them to enter and with a clean slate.